Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're watching, do you like and subscribe or subscribe to the podcast. I am so, so honoured to be joined by Owen. Hello, 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 hello. Hello. Hey, Owen. Great, great. Really lovely to to speak to you finally. This is this is a wonderful way to spend some time. So thank you for asking. It is. It is. By the way, you're, you're looking glowing. If you don't mind me saying Am so. I? Yeah, I'd say I, pretty glowing. I've moved to the country. I'm in Suffolk right now. So it's uh, yeah. it, it, it's so much better for your health, for your mental health. The, the air is lovely around here. And I've actually got the curtains closed. There's some kind of light bouncing off me but as long as i look well that's all i have I'm, you do, it's probably about the air thing because you do realize just how much the difference that makes because during the first lockdown after a few weeks i remember there was all these stories about animals reclaiming the world because humans had vanished but the air in london was noticeably so much cleaner and it made a difference it did i remember first seeing because iran was hit very badly with covid and um the first pictures came from Tehran, which is the, one of the most polluted cities, about six weeks in, and the skies were blue. There was no pollution. They showed a before and after of Iran from the mountains. There's like a thick smog, and then it all gone. So, yeah, things are, you know, it's probably a blessing in disguise. We, we, I know, exactly. They, they did actually, there was a study originally that suggested that some people's lives will have been saved because obviously, yeah. I mean, pollution kills more people. Okay, pollution kills more people globally annually than cigarette smoking so it does um let's start stand-up comedy because you are a brilliant and celebrated stand-up comic <laughs> sorry um, yeah can i just tell you one thing you, you just froze on my picture for a second and what happens is like on zooms you freeze and you come back really quickly i know yeah i know, I know, I know. people they speed up yeah i was talking <laughs> to someone <laughs> i was talking to someone recently and they were trying to say something and, and i don't know what happened but he just went quiet then he said he goes what do you wear and he came back well what are you wearing big boy and I went, sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was the end of it. He goes, and then he said to me, What are you wearing? But he just said, What are you wearing, Wibble? It was very funny. But anyway, it's funny. You often like when you walk past strangers sometimes, you just get kind of, this is a bit of a segue, but I'm just too late. I'm in too deep. Uh, but you walk past some strangers and you just get these little blips of their conversation. Like, and that's why hamsters are better than tortoises. Do you know what I mean? Just really <laughs> random little kind of like, What's very the context? <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, what it, yeah, stand up. So, I mean, obviously, as a stand up comedian, during uh, I think the least funny thing, I mean, it's not been funny as a, as a general rule, this whole thing, but you've obviously been unable to perform. And I've spoken to lots of people, you know, performers, actors like Michael Sheen during the pandemic, for example, lots of other comedians like Stuart Lee, and and and, and obviously, you're now touring again. So, what's that been like? Have you have you gone through cold turkey? Yes, I think that's the thing. Uh, the um, comedians are like joy givers, I suppose. We, we, we'll we try and find a way anyway. That's why you saw us all on Zoom, the driving gigs. I actually I actually quite miss my Zoom gigs. I'm trying to work out if there's any things from my Zoom gigs that I can only do on Zoom to do them in the live, and I can't because I always used to finish my Zoom gigs by taking the computer to the toilet and saying I like to finish with the sound of my career, and I'd flush the toilet. And that would be it. Then they'll be laughing. 
And that's it. That was just like, there's no better way to end a gig than the sound of your career being flushed away. So I've not quite, <laughs> I've not quite found a better ending. Um, but it's been a disaster for, for us, really. I mean, we did, oh my God, were you aware of the drive-in gigs? Did you see any driving? Did you hear about them, drive-in gigs? No, but I'm, do you know I'm about all... driving gigs? I just can't, no. I, do you know what? I was going to do that thing where you know people pretend they kind of know, but they don't. And I'm not even going to bother with that. I'm just going to say I don't. It's like Norm Macdonald always used to people ask. Norm Macdonald would say, um, "Hey, have you seen the uh, Meryl Streep film?" You go, "Yeah," and I haven't. And you think, "Why am I lying about? It? I've got nothing to gain from this lie." <laughs> I used to lie, just lying about stuff yeah. for no reason. Just random, yeah, just not even big lies, just very small little. Oh small yeah, I, think I have heard of that. I haven't. You know, drive-in cinemas in America. Yeah. And we're not a drive-in cinema country. We, we try to do driving gigs, which means you have a stage, a comedian speaks, and there are people in cars parked in a car park. The one I was at was at Brent Cross Shopping Centre. There was 300 cars. And the way it works is you speak, and everyone's in their cars, and they've tuned you into a channel on the radio. So you come out into the car speakers. Now, as a comedian, you can't you can't hear anyone. So you're just talking to avoid people eating in cars all you see is people talking in the cars they're not really listening and um and if you if, if they don't like you at a comedy club people leave but can you imagine someone trying to leave a driving gig like there's a three-point turn and the people other people getting out of the cars if you're in the middle and even then it takes them a long time and they still drive past the stage open the window and go you're shit and they go off like that so it's it's bad enough anywhere it's such a disastrous experience and everything i tried um, although I did, I, I started up an Instagram account and started doing just filming stuff around the house, you know, like lo lockdown uh, pandemic tips and all the normal things. But now that we're back on stage, Owen, this is where it's interesting. And this is where it's very significant for every comedian. We've been in, in a lockdown where we've all come together as the world. The level of discourse has gone up. A lot of people are on social media. Their language has got better. They're care for the planet is become higher so the level of discourse thus the level of comedy has to be higher so people demand i mean i, I was at this conference the rts uh royal television society conference where everybody and i did a very terrifying gig there and i'll tell you about it but the chairman of the bbc um was was giving a talk about how there was a demand for higher quality content now this is why your youtube channel is important you you're speaking to important people like myself because you need to give high quality content. Very high quality content. It's a very high very bar. High, it's a very high bar. And, and even, even at this conference, they wanted me to give a talk. And I'm, I'm sat at a table with the head of the BBC, chairman of the BBC, CEO of Channel 4, the head of YouTube who made £20 billion, $20 billion last year. To my left is 20th Century Fox and Netflix. And the guy from YouTube said, um, do you want to make fun of me? I said, did you give a talk today? Because yeah, I did. And I wasn't at the talk. And I said, uh, head of YouTube is here. And uh, his talk is available as a sleep aid tape. And uh, everyone went, what? He's, he had a great talk. And then the whole place went, an outrageous thing to say. I thought he was really good. So they had no sense of humor about that. It really died. But um, but but I think that, that, that this demand for high quality content is a real challenge for comedians. And I found that you'll find this funny i found that stuff that's like silly puns and things people just don't tolerate i did a couple of covid variant gags which i probably shouldn't have done 
but they've been going really well, the show. And then I just said, hey, so many variants. There's like the Delta variant. Uh, you know, I had the Bankers variant the other day. It was quite bad, but, you know, cleared after three working days, which some people might have gone like that. But this one woman just went, oh, my God. He goes, is that a joke? And then I said, well, actually, I also had the Alan Titchmarsh variant. It was quite mild, but I'm suddenly attracted to women of a certain age. She goes, is that supposed to be funny? And I said, then I had the Sean Bean variant, which means whatever role I played, whether it was Russian, Arab or Turkish, even if I, play, even if I played an alien, genetically spliced with a B, I still talk in a Yorkshire accent. And people started chucking things at me. They literally said, this is appalling, rubbish. Someone said, is that the best thing you can think of in 18 months? COVID variant jokes. I mean, I was literally getting heckled. And I thought, okay, but I better drop down. <laughs> I'm just trying stuff out. So my, my main observation is that people are really demanding high-level quality content, and it's hard to do it all the way. I think this is interesting about COVID-related humour, because obviously there's uh, the old, is it too soon? I remember once I tweeted, um, oh, God, what was it? It was something to do in a bar where they ask for tips and they made it into a pun about the Titanic. And it's such an obvious one that I should just remember it. I think everyone could probably work it out. Something to do with tipping like the Titanic. Anyway. And I too po- soon. Too soon, t- Titanic. People said that. People did when I posted on Instagram going, oh, and a lot of people died in the Titanic. It's really inappropriate <laughs> when you post. And it was just like, it was just some, some obviously some staff at a cafe just wanted to encourage tips. But, and you think with COVID, I just kind of think, with COVID that we've obviously all gone through quite a traumatic collective experience, obviously for some people far more traumatic than others. But when you go through a trauma and I do think without being a bit kind of, Oh, this is what British people are like. There is something of a cultural phenomenon, isn't there to make dark humor about grim collective experiences. Like people did. I mean, people have this thing about the blitz, which is all completely made up in history because actually in the blitz people did, pickpocketed the dead and things which people don't really want to talk about. Um, but people made dark humour about it, even though they're getting bombed from the air. And people didn't go, oh, because it's a, way of, it's a way of coping, really, isn't it? It is. It's a very good point. And, and, and we're very good at that in Britain. Um, whereas, I'll tell you something interesting also happened. Whereas in Iran, um, I, I, are you aware of Clubhouse? You know, that, that app where people yeah. can talk to each other. Has it kind of died to death, though? I don't know what's happened with it. It's not died a death. They, they recruited a whole bunch of new people around January, February, because mm-hmm. it, it was hijacked by, you know, the insurrectionists on January the 6th at Capitol Hill. So Clubhouse got rid of a lot of people and they headhunted a bunch of new people. And I think there was a big thing around February, March, everybody was on it. And then we kind of went quiet. But the, but the Iranians on there are in their thousands. If you go on a Clubhouse mm-hmm. with a couple of British comedians, you'll probably get 200 people in a room. The Iranians one, you get a couple of Iranian celebrities come on. There's eight, nine thousand people in the room. Whoa. And there was long, long discussions because in Iran, COVID has been pretty bad. And interesting things happening in Iran where you've got a very brutal regime, but you've got a, a populace who've become extremely politically correct. So jokes about the other are not tolerated anymore. Whereas, for example, you cannot do jokes about the, the regional jokes. You know, like we might mildly do a joke about a scouser. I mean, all those jokes of Paddy, Mick and things went to the pub. Those jokes were gone from the 60s and 70s. But but in Iran, they still existed up until about 10 years ago. And then now it's like completely any jokes about gays 
any jokes about people in a certain region of Iran is not tolerated. So I was on a clubhouse, and these are people from Iran, sort of 9,000 people there. But bear in mind, if, if someone says something that is incorrect or is critical of the government, people can be arrested. People can, they'll find out who's, who, who is listening will come and arrest you. So they said, oh, we've got Omid Jalili here. And I'm speaking in Persian, by the way. So I made this observation that in Iran, everyone's very politically correct. They don't, you know, tolerate jokes about gays, but gay people are being hanged almost every day in Iran. Then I noticed the numbers go down. I, mean, like, I, I just said that. I said the government. So from about 8,000 went to 7,000. And I said, but it's interesting. What happens if a gay, you, you, can't, you can't do jokes about gay. I said, what, what about, how about, if I was a comedian in Iran, I would do this joke. That the gay guy is being, uh, is being executed and the, and the execution says, any last words? And the person says, can I tell a joke? They said, go ahead. He goes, two gays walk into a bar. And the execution says, do you know what? You're only making things worse for yourself. So that would be a joke I would make in Iran about this dichotomy. They threw me out the room because, and I thought there was some problems. I came back and there's only a thousand people there and everybody was angry and upset. There were some people saying, how dare people leave? And other people saying, he's speaking the truth. It is true. Gays are being killed. And why can't we, you know, even if, what if a gay person wants to tell a joke about being gay you know and so it's very interesting to me that the way the pandemic has brought everyone together we, we don't people just less tolerant of jokes about the other it's really interesting mm -hmm. to me especially in iran you talk to anybody there and people would start a joke about an area of iran like liverpool because hey what if a uh, scouser and they'd cut you off they would say you can't do that so it's very interesting to me where whereas dark humor here and I'm not saying those are dark jokes, but but dark humor in general is, is a is a coping mechanism, mm -hmm. whereas dark humor in Iran can get you arrested. So that's the thing why a lot of comedians you see them on Instagram. Iranian comedians just do voiceover. You don't see that for the funniest people mm -hmm. are the people who just do voiceovers. They don't dare say anything critical about the government. So it is interesting that we we deal with things in, in a different way. Well, that's interesting. I mean, in terms of kind of the other, and you know, in the pandemic, it'd be nice to think that's diminished in some way. But then yeah. attacks, for example, on people of Asian origin surge in lots of countries, yes. um, not least because some of the rhetoric, you know, that's why calling it the China virus and so on was so... Oh, my God, at the beginning, remember that? Yeah, I do, yeah. yeah I remember yeah. making, I remember saying, I, I sent tweets around January saying, why are we calling it the, the Chinese? It was the Chinese virus. Although, was it the China virus? Is that what we called it? Do you remember? Yeah. I mean, for a while, to be fair, it was Wuhan, wasn't it? And that's why as well you got when the alphabet, you know, the, going back to variants, that was an improvement because for a while we called Delta the Indian strain. And actually for a while yeah, it didn't yeah, look yeah. like Delta would stick, but we do just call it Delta, don't we? And we don't even know if it originated in India, obviously. I think if there's enough outrage, do you remember when, when Islamic State first came out? And I, I remember being aware of it on Twitter saying, what's Islamic State? Islamic State killed James Foley around 2014, yeah. Yeah. and Islamic State this. And I remember the first tweet I ever sent that kind of went viral was, I said to the BBC, could we please not call them Islamic State? Most Islamic States are against these people. If they call themselves that, maybe you should put the prefix, the so-called Islamics. I wrote yeah. that and about a thousand people shared it, or 600, I can't remember where it was. And then literally a day, a day later or two days later, 
I'm not saying I did it, but it was if there's enough outrage, then you did. You can change that. Yeah, they changed that. Right, it might have done. Might have done. Because it was so, it was so offensive to me. So Islamic State. I'm thinking, what? It's like British State have just killed. What British state? What are you talking about? You know, so, as soon as you see it the other way around, it's more ridiculous. And interesting is it's interesting there how the propaganda of ISIS and Islamophobes coincided because it was in the interest of ISIS to present themselves as the genuine flag bearers of Islam, which of course they're not. It's actually a very heretical um, form of um, of interpretation of the Quran. Uh, but it's also Islamophobes would like to argue they were the genuine incarnation of Islam. So it was actually, again, and it was an example of how, you know, there's that meme on Twitter of two ha- like shaking hands like this, going, you know, I- uh, you know, ISIS, Islamophobes, ISIS is the genuine, authentic expression of Islam. <laughs> uh, in terms of audiences, then, what's it been like? I mean, with going on stand, going on tour again, because obviously people have been imprisoned in their homes for quite a lot of time. Yeah. I, I do. I want to see what you think about. Welcome on to that, actually, about how people's different experiences. Because I was very much in the everything about this is awful. I hate every minute of it. But mm. then you got some people who were like, "Oh, we get to spend our lives in a different way, and life's not so fast, and the rat races." And I was like. Oh, I don't want to, anyway, but what have audiences been like? Do you think for them it was like coming up for air? They're actually in a crowded place watching comedy. Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, look, at the end of the day, we, we'd watched, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were all told to stay home, watch Netflix, watch Piers Morgan getting annoyed by something that we can all get outraged by. And and after a while it was okay, but we, we really craved that experience of being together and actually laughing together is um, physiologically an amazing experience. I mean, the first tweets from the, my first shows, people saying, oh my God, thank you. That was incredible. I feel so much better. There was one tweet that said, I feel healed. I feel healed. And I thought, wow, it, it shows you physiologically there is an experience. Like, like I can see them, Owen, I'm not joking, the front row, people are watching like this. And then if, if they laugh, they go, and they look to their friends and they say, did, did you hear that? Or yeah. I can't believe you just said that. That, that, that sense of the, the shared experience is, is, is massive. But when they said, I feel healed, you, you forget that actually humor is something that should be shared. They say um, a belly laugh is equivalent to 20 minutes of yoga that f- physiologically, you know, Harry Hill was a, was a GP and he became a comedian because he felt laughter was doing, was doing more for his patients than it were uh-huh. than giving the medicine. So actually that whole idea of going out and, it's not just laughter because we can laugh at things, but actually there's, there's a joyousness to it. If you, if you can tap into the joy, that's quite different. I think that's what's what's healing. I mean, you can do so. I mean, I don't know Jimmy Carr used to talk about what he loved was the laugh and the kind of Ugh. like he loved the kind of when people go, Ugh, I'm embarrassed for even laughing at that. But if there's a genuine, uh, like the way Sean Locke used to make us laugh, Sean, Sean Locke used to do such hysterical routine there was always a joy in his in his work and there's a joy and there's quite a few comedians i can mention who are just joyous but if you if you find that joy and i think it, it's a really it's an amazing shared experience even if it's not full that my, my shows have not been full at all i mean i think one show was sold out there's still some covid hesitancy but just the, the shared experience is incredible i'll come on to sean lock in a bit because it's such an obviously horrific well just just a terrible moment for millions of people, but not least for, I suppose, the comedy family. But yeah. interesting about shared experience, I thought, you know, I was, um, I got invited, this is a brilliant pub in 
Exmouth Market in Islington, the Michaela Brew Pub, which is owned by Rick Astley. And they got in touch with me to oh, say wow. Rick Astley was doing a gig, which I went to, <laughs> went to last oh, Was that time. your video? Was that your video? There was a video that went viral. Oh, no, there was one where he went viral with Blossoms, which is a northern, a, a band actually from Stockport, where I'm from. It's named after a pub okay. I grew up around the corner from, uh, where he did um, uh, This Charming Man. This and Charming it was because, Man, yeah. Because people said, it's funny, how, who would have thought like 30 years later or whatever, that uh, that Morrissey would be regarded as just like awful and Rick Astley's like the king of cool all of a sudden. Like, it's just interesting how, but it was just Everybody like- said that. Everybody well, said that, one, but, but I, I just thought it was Michael McIntyre doing karaoke with a band he'd hired. He looked like Michael, Michael McIntyre. McIntyre. But but sorry, it was like a People were just like really going for it. Uh, you know, he did covers and then he obviously he did. He was in his element with never going to get anyway. But it was just it, it was just a great you could see the cathartic experience. People were in a collective environment. You know, they weren't stuck doing these long. I mean, because obviously, you know, people like yourself, comedians, actors. I remember speaking to Michael Sheen. Obviously, he did his whole thing online and that was made a big difference to people. But you just can't beat the real, the IRL experience as people younger than myself would say with more ease. What, why study the Greek tragedies when you can have an amazing catharsis in, oh. a, in a, in a theatre? There you go. That's, that's my quote of the day. <laughs> a pity little tweet there. Uh, let's talk before, I would talk about how you got into stand-up comedy and stuff, but let's talk about Sean Locke because as, as I say, it was yeah. such a, you know, when everyone got that notification, I think people were, you know, genuinely just so upset because he he did bring so much just joy and laughter to people, I suppose. So just tell me about tell me about yeah. Sean. What, what tell me about what Sean Locke meant to you, I suppose. Well, Sean, what Sean Locke meant to me was you should realise he was the, the a generation just above me. I mean, even someone being two or three years older than you, they're seen as a generation above. Like there was a whole group of comedians: Bill Bailey, Sean Locke, Harry Hill. Even uh, Badil and Skinner, uh, Badil, Newman and Badil, um, they're all the generation uh, above who I looked up to and, and really enjoyed their work. And he was the first person, I suppose, who came across me and thought I was funny for myself. So I, I got to support him a couple of times on his pre-tours where he'd go and do, you know, these little venues and I would go and do half an hour before him. So then we travel back together. And I was amazed at how we never talked comedy. Like we're com coming back from Harrogate one night in 97. God, this is nearly 24 years ago. Um, he, um, we just talked philosophy, life, God, the universe. He was very interested in comparative religion. He was very, very interested that I was not a Muslim. I'm, I'm a Baha'i, which is a faith that grew out of Islam in the same way Christianity grew out of Judaism. So mm -hmm. he said, tell me about that. He was, he was genuinely very interested. And then a few years later, um, if you see the roster of the people who did his uh, Channel 4 television show, TV Heaven, Telly Hell, everybody on it were, were really well-known people now, like Bill Bailey, Lee Mack. You know, a lot of people were on it. And, and then he was really chasing me down to do it. He kept calling me and we had a meeting. I said, I said what is this? Is it, I said, Sean, am I, am I the diversity? Am I your diversity quota? And he looked genuinely offended. He goes, no, I mean, I just think you're really funny and I, I like your viewpoint on things. I, I wouldn't have you. I don't, do you think I care about diversity quotas? No, not at all. And the most fun we had, I actually even, I waited a week to, to tweet. I sent out a clip of the bit of us, which now looks like an amazing setup to one of his punchlines. Um, and it was just joyous. The very few people make me laugh 
out loud. And I was very well aware of him. Um, to give you an example of how funny he was, one of his shows in the 90s, it was all about, oh, he's got this big ending, very big end. And the end was he just ripped open his shirt and it had this question mark on it. He goes, I am the Riddler. That, I am the Riddler. And that was it. And he goes, that's my ending. Please don't tell anyone. And then he went, it's probably quite disappointing, actually. So there's another reason not to talk about people. Well, that's it. That's basically it. In fact, you know what? Just forget the whole thing. <laughs> it was such a disappointing. It was just him in a Riddler t-shirt. And it was so meta. And it was so... And that's the thing. The only time I talk comedy with him, because I do worry that my my comedy is always written and performed for people who've seen a lot of comedy. So I, I'm aware comedians like my stuff. I'm aware a lot of comedy nerds like my stuff. But I'm trying to make it a bit more mainstream. And, and I think that was... That was his success from from the 90s and 2000s through to the 2010s, where he did make that connection. Because my children even, they said, Dad, Dad, Sean Locke's on Live at the Apollo. And my kids didn't like much comedy, but whenever he was on, they would laugh out loud. My wife would laugh at uh, Sean Locke. So there was something very funny about him. And there's a connection with Bill Bailey that they worked very closely together. And then Sean's wife, Anushka, was at... Um, art school with Chris, who's Bill Bailey's uh, wife. So there's that connection where the four of them were were very funny. And, and, you know, they're just very, very funny people. I think Bill and um, Sean had come back from, they come back from Colombia. And yeah. uh, one of us said to him, so what, what were you doing there? And I think Bill said we were, yeah, went, we went looking, we went searching for the lost city. And I said, what was it like? And Sean goes, we never found it. And they fell apart laughing for half an hour. I mean, it's so silly. Their, their sense of humour was very silly. But I can tell you, both those guys are two of the most brain-boxed, philosophical, interested, cultured, articulate human beings I think we have in comedy. I'm so, I'm so pleased that I even had some time with them. They're amazing people. What made you go into stand-up comedy? When do you kind of realise... I'm a funny little bastard. Yeah, what, <laughs> makes you, what, makes you, what, what kind of brings you, you know, what's the kind of, what's the, you know, what, what kind of buzz do you get? Because I suppose that's the thing when you go back to live audiences, but whenever you speak to a comedian, it's always about the vibe in the, in the audience. You bounce off that energy and obviously doing that via Zoom is not ideal. But what made you go into stand-up comedy in the first place? And what, what made it so special for you, I suppose, when you realised this is it? I, I think it's, I, I'm one of those people that went into stand-up comedy kicking and screaming. I, I really didn't want to do it. I didn't didn't see myself. A lot of people see comedy, they want to become comedians. They say there's about every week there's a thousand people try it. And it's like the sperm that fertilizes the egg. Very few people get through. And um, And even then it was my wife said to me, and very few spouses want their husbands and partners to go into comedy because they know that they've, they've lost them to comedy then. But mm -hmm. she took me to the comedy store in 1994. And I remember seeing these amazing, a guy called Mark Mayer, mm -hmm. um, a guy called, mm -hmm. Mark, um, my God, there was a guy called, it was some impressionist who was so, so fantastic. I mean, he was so good. I remember in my diary saying this guy was way better than Mike Harwood. Oh my God. And this last guy was very funny for a working class fella. You know, it was like some really stupid things I said. I never thought I could do it. And then I thought I'd give it a shot. And I, this is, what I'm going to tell you now is absolutely the truth. Have you heard the story about my first ever gig? No, no I, I, I mean, I'm very, I'm a tenterhooks. Okay, this well. is the first ever gig I ever did. 
someone said, just go and try five minutes. And this guy had seen me at um, at a wedding. I'd uh-huh. done some bits of the wedding. And he goes, uh-huh. you try doing stand comedy? I went, no, I'd never want to do that. This is around 96. He goes, I'm in Wimbledon. There's a Wimbledon Theatre, which is now the Polka Theatre in Wimbledon. There was They had a comedy night there. And he said, just come on and do five minutes and I'll have, I'll have a look. And uh, the guy on before me was one of an MC who was like, you know, bad ventriloquism where he was going, got a gear. He was drinking beer whilst trying to do ventriloquism, but it, it was crap. He was like, oh, 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 and, the vent- <laughs> and there's beer everywhere and people were laughing. And it was proscenium march. So you've got a stage and then you've got people below you. And I thought I'd bound on like a Shakespearean actor, but I slipped. He said, he didn't get my name right. He goes, please, would you welcome Omar Darjeeling? was my name and I thought god so I came on I thought I'd I thought I'd just come on like a Shakespearean actor please welcome Omar Darjeeli and I came on and I slipped in the beer my leg my leg kind of like cracked like that and I went fly so I arrived horizontal and I landed on my ribs and the audience are laughing and I went ah and I went to take the microphone literally had the microphone and it wouldn't come out I wouldn't come out and I was like, and people were laughing. And then it just came out in one go, went bang and hit me in the head. And I cut my, I'm not kidding, Owen. I had a three inch, because these are quite hard, these things. A three inch scar hit me hard. And I and I, I saw this blood. I went, ah, like that. And the audience are laughing. And I pulled the lead out. So I was talking and someone, someone said, we can't hear you, you twat. And I saw the lead had come out. So I went to pick up the lead. But in those days, there was no kind of health and safety. They usually put like a white strip and I didn't see. So I just fell off the stage. I fell head first into the front row, banged my head. I'm not kidding. I banged my head on the armrest and I fell down on the ground and I was looking up at the sky. And you know, when you've hit your, I don't know if you've ever hit your head hard, you hear Tweety birds, you can hear chip, chip, chip. And the room was, you know, turning around and I just looked up. I thought, oh, there's a nice, it's a nice gothic ceiling. And these blokes picked me up saying, this is brilliant. Get back up there. And I went, I went, what? And they were trying to push me back up on the stage, but it was a little bit too high. So I was trying to walrus on. I was doing this and they said, help him. And before I knew it, these hands were all over my legs and ass. And they lifted me up quickly as I lifted up my left leg. And my trousers ripped, like black trousers ripping white underwear. And then I walrus onto the stage all the beer was on this gray shirt of mine so i just stood there i put i put the lead back in the microphone looked at everyone and now there's blood trickling down blood trickling i've got a wet shirt and i just stood there in all genuine authentic honesty honesty i just went hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Can I start again? Like that. And this laugh came up. I did two go- I did two jokes. I walked off and the bloke said, that was brilliant. I'm having you back. Would you take 60 quid? And I went, I've never been paid. I said, 60 quid, of course. And he goes, I've wrong everyone. And I went back the next week and I just did some stand-up. And he's on the side going, where's the act? Where's the act? And that- so it came off. He goes, what was that? I said, I just did five. And was it okay? He goes, I booked the act from last week. I said, oh that wasn't God. an act. He goes, I've been telling everyone there's this new Charlie Chaplin guy from Iran who just, and he can do a really good English accent. I've booked everyone. It was too late. Everyone had booked me. So I was, I'd already had gigs lined up. I had about eight gigs or six gigs or something. But he kept saying, I booked the act. Where's the act? And you know, the stupid thing was, I, got, I was doing, my career went really well for a couple of years. Then I had a bit of a dip. And I thought, you know what, maybe I should bring back, bring back the act. So I tried to recreate. Eventually die doing that, I would imagine. I'd imagine <laughs> death is the kind of eventual outcome after maybe three goes. I left the theatre in a neck brace. I tried to do the whole thing. It was terrible. It was all absolutely I mean, it was an anxiety dream. That is a very, it was a particularly horrifying anxiety dream. I went through it exactly. Exactly what I just said is what happened. It's incredible. I, I mean, that is, I mean, just wow. I, I'm re, I'm traumatised. <laughs> By this particular, but yeah, not to be. I would. I would just think a one-off is fine, but maybe after severe concussion, probably going to lead to long-term health complications. Seriously, I cut myself and everything. I mean, it, it was. And the thing was, because then I got known as a physical act, I felt I better put some physicality in the act. So I started doing ridiculous Godzilla impressions. I started. I started singing a lot more. I started dancing in the act. And I, th- I kept at the comedy store. I kept saying, "If you um, if you don't laugh, I'll cover it with belly dancing." So this, so this dancing would come, and the guy just kept pressing the button, music on, music off, and I became this kind of whirlwind Tasmanian devil of of comedy who just come on and scream and shout, dance and sing a bit, and um, and of course everyone thought I because I put on an accent at the beginning. It was the days where I was the only. I mean, there were no. Everyone was. It was, if, if you look at Stuart Lee and Richard Herring and you, if you see them as white middle-class people, there was, or, or we had some white middle-class people pretending to be working class. Then you had some working class. Everyone was white and they, were, and, and they never put me on. Oh, and this is so true. In the nineties, they never put me on with a woman because they thought they needed diversity. So I'd be on with three guys and me. Right. Or there'd be th- three guys and Joe Brand, three guys and Joe Enright. So it was very interesting that I was seen as a diversity. And I'll never forget, I have to tell you this story. In 96, I had done, and I, and I can tell you this because I know the guy and I can say his name. His name is Smashy. Smashy ran a club in uh, South End in Chur- Churchill's. And he was so excited by me. He, he goes, I want to talk to you. C- come to my office. He goes, you're brilliant. You're brilliant. Thing is, can't recommend you because I forgot your name. What you need to do is change your name. Go, what, what is your name? I said, Omid Jalili. He goes, Dad, Dad, yeah, I've forgotten that already. What you need to do, get a picture of yourself, all right, with a big turban, pantaloons, curly-toed shoes, call yourself Ali Baba, the Sultan of Comedy. You get a lot of work that way. You get a lot of work. And the thing was, I didn't see him 
for about 10 years. And then I saw him outside the BBC studios when I was doing the Homage and Lily show, which is the BBC One show. He said, what are you doing here? I said, uh, I'm doing, I was quite humble. I said, just doing my own show. He goes, where? I said, BBC. He goes, you got your own show on BBC? He goes, yeah. He goes, did you, uh, did you ever do the picture of Alibaba? I said, no. He goes, see, it would have happened much quicker, mate. Was, <laughs> that was 10 years ago. Would happen quicker. It would happen in five years. So it is. I really was the only. I mean, since me, we've had. Excuse me. Since me, we've had Shazim Mirza, Shafi Hosandi. There's a whole bunch of what you'd call BAME actors acts coming on. But um, yeah, at the time, it was it was remarkable. That I was the only person doing it from a brown person. I mean, do you find? I mean, you know, racism and comedy. Because often people think about comedy as being a relatively. I mean, this is wrong, I know, I'm just saying this up as a caricature, though, as a kind of progressive space when actually, you know, comedy does have lots of problems. And often spaces which often see themselves as progressive often think yeah. by, they've, you know, well, how could we be, how could we ever fail on these issues? Because we, if you call yourself that, you know, it's like many put feminist in their Twitter profiles. Instantly, I always feel very suspicious of them because it's almost <laughs> like, I'm going to hand myself a little sweetie and call myself a feminist. Therefore, I am. Therefore, I'm great about issues to do with women. I mean, what do you think about, you know, in terms of your own experiences and those of others about comedy, about racism? Well, it's, it's, see, first of all, a lot of people misunderstood. They, they misunderstand jokes even today. Um, at 2 a.m., 2.30 a.m., I was up and uh, I saw that David Icke was trending. So oh, there yeah. were lots of people asking if he was a lizard. And I said, I've always thought he was a lizard ever since that time he saved a penalty with his tongue. It was just because he used to be a goalkeeper. And then um, someone wrote to me, I've just seen in your bio, you're a comedian, hashtag, you're not funny. And I thought, Wow. Even in my bio, I've put doc, I put quotes, dot, 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 a comedian, dot, 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 the Daily Mail, which was like the best bit of the review the Daily Mail gave me that I could put in my bio. <laughs> so that's a joke that, you know, or it could be dot, 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 first on, dot, dot, dot. That, that's the best bit of the review they've said about me. So in general, people do um, misunderstand jokes. And I flirted with this. I flirted with race, religion, and all of that. And, and I think where I hit a line where I think was wrong, mm -hmm. you know, when, when Al Murray says, you know, it's clear what my politics are, but it's very clear mm -hmm. what I'm trying. I'm trying to, you know, parody mm -hmm. the pub mm -hmm. landlord, but a lot of people come who agree with me. There was once I did a joke, which the, I just said it. I remember just, cause I was, I, I always catch myself when I'm getting too worthy. And I was very upset that I got called, I got called a packy once and um, I really was upset by this. So I went on stage and I said this and I, and I said it in, a, I can't remember where it was, but it was a very Brexity, you know, very white town. I won't say where it is, but I just said this and that's when I thought, okay, I've hit the line. I've crossed the line here. Where I said, I got called a packy after my show last night in the, in the, car park and, I, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm in my 50s now and I, I'm a conscious human being so I confronted this person I said excuse me sir you cannot call me that that's a terrible thing to call someone number one I'm not from Pakistan I'm from Iran which geographically is um, a country next door number two um, the word Paki is why can't you say it's Pakistani to, to, to lower it it's, it's as bad as the n-word as far as I'm concerned and number three most important 
I hate packies. <laughs> so, and that and that was the line where it was obviously as a joke, and I was I was upset that someone had called me that. So I was trying to make out that I'm an Iranian. You can't call me. So as an Iranian, I should tell you I hate packies, which is a terrible thing to say. But the woofer I got, and that's when I thought because I really thought people had grown or someone shouted me, so you can't do that. But the laugh it got was a real warning that actually um, you've got to be careful. There is a line. And even if you get a massive laugh, mm. it's not exactly the right laugh. So I dropped it. I dropped it after that. And, I, and then I brought it back again, thinking, no, but I'm being postmodern about it. And me and my management, we talked about that joke for a whole year, whether we should do it or not. And, and I remember thinking, you, it's playing with fire sometimes. To do it. Mm. Race is such a sensitive thing. You have to be absolutely sure you know what you're saying with the joke to even because the whole point of doing jokes and doing stand-up comedy is you have to be committed to the joke and that's why people laugh and when you feel yourself thinking that actually whose side am i batting for am i with the racists on this one so yeah it's a difficult one and i've i've made mistakes and i think that's the whole point i've made many mistakes but the whole, whole point of mistakes is to always look back at them and, and try and work out why you made the mistakes because you know as comedians we're always people are being you know, cancelled left, right, and the centre for things they say in the moment, but they probably wouldn't if they thought about it a bit more. They wouldn't say it. I mean, related. Does that to make that, any sense? It does make it does make sense. It does make sense. I mean, related to that, you know, in the time you've been doing comedy, the country has changed a lot, and mm. you know, I mean, I I say this whilst resisting what I sometimes call twenty twelve Olympic syndrome. Um, I love the opening ceremony just before yeah. I get some very angry messages to spare that particular tedium but there are some who are a bit like oh britain was great and united in 2012 we had this great olympic ceremony that's when britain was at its best when actually you know it's like well you weren't having your benefits cut at the time mate and you weren't a nurse having a real turn pay. you know it's that kind of stuff real times per pay cut the nhs bill to privatize it was going through well austerity was you know you know you have to be from quite a comfortable privileged position to think that but it is certainly just objectively the case that the country and the world have gone through a lot of political and social tumults, which have left it far more divided and polarized than it was mm. in the late nineties, early noughties. I mean, you had the war of terror, you had the consequences of the financial crash, you've got Brexit and various other political phenomena, which divided people in a very passionate and bitter way, in a way that's unprecedented in the post-war period. And comedy, you know, comedy doesn't live in a, in a in a in a in a separate world from all of that it has to you know its audiences live in that world and the comedy expressed on the stage they're watching has to interact and reflect yeah. that world in lots of ways so how does it you know how's how how hard is it to cope and manage with that you you have to know your audience i think that's the that's the most important thing and and you have to be aware um of cultural sensitivities i mean whenever I become, i'm lucky i get to tour internationally and i always get to the gigs a day or two before and say, look, you've booked the act, let's go through it and let's see where this is gonna, where this is gonna cajole, where this will push, make people think, or we'll just offend. And I'm not here to offend. I don't really want to, I'm not here to offend your people. So we go through it and we find different references. And I'd write some material for that country or that town uh, themselves. So I think it's something that we have to be, you have to know your audience. And I, and I know that I've made so, believe me, I've, I've offended so many people. I've offended, you know, whole countries of people. I've been in newspapers for saying the wrong thing. But but now I realize what I want to do is bring joy. And what I want to do is 
create a rollicking good night. So I'm very careful about what I'm what I'm saying now, and I'm not there to upset, but I'm not doing it from fear. If, if I have something to say, I'll say it. I think that's the most important thing. Comedians should always be saying what people are thinking but would never dare say, in a sense. That's why we love comedians like Stuart Lee. We, we even love Al Murray, pub landlord. They're just saying what a lot of things would never dare mm-hmm. say, you know, and I think that's a very important you know, mechanism of our culture that we allow that to happen. It's part of free speech. It's part of all of us moving forward. But at the same time, you can't be fearful. So the only way you can navigate that is be really sure that with your set of values, what you're saying is representing you in the correct way. And it's as funny as hell. Sometimes I think, oh, I really want to say something because it's politically the right thing to say. But But is it funny? And you think, nah. Even And Sean Locke, going back to Sean Locke, Sean Locke said he never, ever... Um, stood there on a soapbox just to make a point. Because if, if I didn't have a laugh, I'd never say it. Just wouldn't bother. Mm. There's no point just making a point. There has to be a joke because that's what we are. We're, we're comedians, which we're trying to make people laugh. Just fine. That makes sense. It does make sense. It does make sense. I was just going to ask you, just finally, just because you know, obviously, there's a uh, there's a political bent to my my own work. Of course, may, may have noticed. Um, Boris Johnson. I'll just say Boris Johnson. See what happens. How about that? Boris is an interesting one because I do talk about him. My, 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 my aim is always to talk about it in a way that doesn't, what, what I would love is if I ever talk about a, a politically divisive figure and get everyone nodding and laughing. That was the thing. I did a routine about Brexit on Prince Charles's 70th birthday, which I wasn't supposed to do. And I'm, and they said nothing political. And I just, I really want to do this Brexit routine and, um, and I did it and Prince and everyone laughed and Prince Charles specifically said that was a great thing because comedy should really be bringing a nation together mm-hmm. and you're making some interesting points. So yeah, Boris Johnson is an interesting figure. He's someone, I have a whole routine about him where I'm actually, I actually say, I feel sorry for him because actually he's all you see of him. He's just trying to get sacked and no one will let him everything he's done. He's trying to get sacked and they won't. I mean, the beginning of the routine is because 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 he realised he's not making enough money. You know, he's 160,000 quid. He sees Blair, he sees John Major. They get, they get 500,000 pounds for just an appearance. So he's trying to get sacked. And he'll say things like, you know, just tell people I slept with Jennifer Curry and, um, you know, I gave her lots of public funds. We told him that. And you went up in the polls. And that's the uh, that's the beginning of the routine. You have to come and see the rest of the routine. Yeah. But I announces, feel sorry the, announces the killing of the firstborn. Conservatives plus five. <laughs> there you go that's going in the act um Keir Starmer how do you think he's doing I, you're always doing well when your hair has its own twitter account Keir Starmer's hair is a twitter account and I follow it <laughs> I always like the tweet are you aware of the Keir Starmer's hair I'm twitter not account? but the account sounds more interesting than the actual politician I'm sorry I'm, <laughs> I'm not even restraining myself anymore <laughs> Well, I don't know. I've never met him. I've never met any of these people. Oh, he's a perfectly really... nice guy. Oh, perfectly nice guy. That's not the problem. I do know a friend of mine who plays football with him, and he says he's a very good footballer and he's very competitive. So that says yeah. a lot. Now, as a football fan, I like to hear that. I he like to do, hear. He should do a lot more playing football. It's obviously something <laughs> he excels at. Yeah, I think you should always stick to what you're good at. <laughs> you're making it very clear. Um, finally. Actually, I haven't got any jokes about Keir, Keir, but I'll try and write some jokes about him just to balance things up. But go on. 
Yeah, I'm in a particularly bitter mood about it at the moment. What? I went quiet because I've got no jokes about him, but go on. That's all it is, yeah. Just to just to avoid any misunderstanding there. Finally, what kind of at the moment, what kind of, uh, you know, it does feel sometimes, you sometimes look back at, I mean, because I think with the pandemic, you kind of think to yourself, imagine explaining to yourself January 2020, what we we're about to go through. And you'd, I don't know where you'd begin. I don't know how you'd respond. Very, you know, it's surreal how normal it becomes. The most, you know, what before this would have seen the most out of this world experience for any of us to go through, which there's no precedent in terms of, you know, your yeah. people's world's been turned upside down since World War Two. So, but what what now do you look and think, this is what gives me hope. This is what makes me happy. This is what makes me think, you know, things are going to be all right. Is there anything? What gives me, what gives me optimism? Yeah, just I kind of like to finish things off and with a, give people a little spring in their steps. They've gone through a lot. Paul, I Lock. think yeah, no, that, that's a very good way to to finish. And actually, I think this whole thing we were talking about this actually before we before we started broadcast that, that the one good thing is that in pandemic everybody has been, you know, reflecting. It's not just about wasting your time watching Netflix all day, but actually the world has come together. This idea of doing no more jokes about the other, the the, the, the sense of outrage has uh, on Twitter and. If a group is attacked, there's a bigger outrage because we see ourselves as one as one planet. And I think that's the biggest thing to come out of for me is the idea of the earth is one country, mankind, its citizens, all those wonderful values that we all kind of feel but never thought would happen is actually happening. So we do care whenever there's a COVID outbreak in India. We cared about the people in India in the same way during the Iraq war. We cared about the Iraqis. We care and I always see that the, the human body is like, is one body. You know, we've got a head, hands, feet. And when you stub your toe, it's the, the toe, you stub your toe, it really hurts. And you go, ah, Jesus. But the toe is the furthest part away from your brain. But we still care because it hurts. And I think that we're moving towards that wonderful, delicious space where what happens is, in, what happens in far, far off flung countries is not just something far away. It's our big toe. And it, and it hurts us. And I think COVID has really shown that we have the Delta variant because we didn't deal with what was going on in India. It, it, we are so interconnected. We're so upset that we never closed the borders or we didn't act quickly enough because the world is one and people will always travel. And I think that's my big takeaway that actually when you see people, I don't see the other anymore. I see we're all one. We're all vulnerable and we're all, we can all get this. I know that's a very fluffy way of right. saying we're all one, but actually the pandemic has brought people together and, and, and the joy of just being together. I mean, we have <laughs> the sense of community that we have now on my road in Ipswich, we had a bring and buy sale and literally I was walking down and people were grimly buying a pair of goggles and flippers. And then I sold my pair of goggles and flippers and we're just like exchanging stuff in each other's houses, but no one cares we're not lost any money. We just want that human interaction. And because we've had that taken away from us, we realize that's the most important thing. So hopefully I think some really good things will come out in the world. The, the, we'll, we'll probably see less wars. I mean, to think there were a couple of wars going on during the pandemic was utterly, where mankind has been attacked by a virus. If that doesn't show you that all our arguments and all our conflicts, if they're not put into perspective now, then they never will be. So I like to think wars will be less and 
in general, arguments and conflicts will be less. Although I'm always up for a Twitter fight. Are you? I really am. I, I love I've it. Never, I've never been accused of uh, uh, withdrawing from that, though. So, <laughs> a lot of people who are close to me are like, could you just give that one a rest? But you, you're certainly... The spirit you just expressed, uh, I think if more people embraced it, the world would be a, a less gruesome place often. But it's, no, exactly. certainly, it's certainly a spirit to capture and to build. It up. is. And we need to laugh more. We really do. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because yeah. laugh, laughing will, is the only thing that will... Um, when, when, I look at, when I look at all my friends who are in their 50s, there was somebody I met recently um, who was in her 50s and she was at school with me, and I, I couldn't believe how different she looked. I mean, she didn't laugh very much in her life. That was a thing. And whereas the the ones who I hang around with laugh all the time, they look younger, they feel better, you know. So laughing is important. If you don't know how to laugh, learn how to laugh by coming to my show. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Joe, <laughs> everybody, and laugh. Exactly. I, mean, I, would, I, would, I would say, you know, it's funny because often people think my tweets were often a bit like, it's like all right, Owen, chill out a bit. Uh, but, and then they meet me in real life. He's like, you're not. But I, you know, it's like I'm this dour, already sour old man when actually not not, not trying to be ages there everyone it's just you know some people go through life and then they feel very bitter at the end of it uh but actually yeah laughing is extremely important and very uh, definitely something i've i've learned the hard I said way to my, i said to my wife recently i booked into a hotel and then when she was like smiling and then i said can I, she goes yeah what do you want i said can i check in he goes yeah what's your name and she was like scowling and i said uh, and in the, in the morning i didn't know where breakfast was so i went back and i said excuse me, do you know where breakfast is? She goes, I said second floor. I said, you never said that. Second floor. And she's scowling at me. I said, to my, I said, is it me? Am I wearing a cheesecloth shirt? Is it the hat? She goes, she goes, no, I think they're very woke and they don't like accent comedy. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, they know you and they don't approve of your comedy. So that's one reason. Come, come and see me deal with, because 50 year olds are always trying to adapt our comedy for today. And, um, and now to do accents is meant to be politically incorrect, but I, I ignore it. And I talk about why I love accents. And it's the musicality of people speaking the different language. I'm an immigrant. I heard people speaking English in a different way. I'm a central London boy, everybody. And I do, the, I, I do the most appalling and most brilliant accent comedy routine that has ever been seen. So I'm, I'm, that's a challenge to all your woke people who watch this. Come and see the come and see that routine, and I dare you not to laugh. That is a challenge for everybody yeah, to embrace. Yeah. Owen, thank you so so much. It's been a real it's pleasure. Real pleasure, Owen. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.